Hello and welcome to the second episode of the Pint of Science Ireland podcast. My name is Brian Kennedy and today we're bringing you extended cuts of the science festival taking place in pubs across Ireland as part of International Pint of Science. We're very excited to be joined by Eleanor Dunn, a PhD researcher at the Dublin Institute of Advanced Studies, where her research topics include seismology, volcanology and numerical modelling. Grab a pint, it's starting. So Eleanor, uh, great to have you here. Thank you. Really nice to be back in person for a recording session. So Eleanor, why did you choose to study volcanoes and seismology? So they've always been very interesting to me. As a kid, I would watch loads of YouTube videos about, about volcanic eruptions and loads of documentaries. But it was never something that I wanted to go into professionally. One of the reasons was because I didn't think it was really something you could do as a job. But also uh, another side of it was because my dad, he'd studied geology at university and he was always trying to get me and my younger brother into geology. Uh, He'd take us up to Scotland and show us loads of rocks and we were never very interested and instinctively we wanted to have nothing to do with it. (laughs) But in time, obviously, um, I realised that you can actually study geology full-time and involve volcanoes and earthquakes. So knowing that, yeah, I decided to study that at university. So I did digital geoscience as a bachelor's, which is basically geology, but with a bit more computers, so a bit more coding, which I learned for the first time at university. And then following on from that, I did a master's by research in volcanology, Uh, which was basically a year-long project studying volcanoes. And then, yeah, when I saw this PhD opportunity that came along, which involved volcanoes and earthquakes, um, uh, I definitely decided to go for it because, yeah, it kind of combined uh, volcanoes, which I've always had a really big interest with, but also earthquakes. I've kind of always wondered about their relationship and, yeah, I've always wanted to study that a bit more. So that's kind of why I'm now where I am. (laughs) It does sound like you're sort of living a childhood dream that I think is common to a lot of people and uh, maybe a a lot of our listeners. Yeah, so as I mentioned, when I was younger, I kind of just thought it was something of an interest um, or a hobby. But growing up, uh, it's always good to realise that your hobbies can become your actual jobs that you can get paid for. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, that's certainly true. I love hearing the stories behind the people who decide to do science. I feel like there's always something that drives them and it's so great to hear about it yeah definitely I mean just watching the documentaries and stuff like that has always been something that I found interesting so it's good that that interest can actually become a a career even from England yeah and as somebody who I guess is is learning expertise in volcanoes and earthquakes do you think that you could make one of those you know science project volcanoes that erupt with the mentos and the coke could you do the best one possible do you think better than anyone else's um <laughs> i mean yeah it would probably have to be because i've done that experiment a few times before at different schools um that i visited uh, which has always been very fun because the kids always have such a good reaction to it but i think to get the most accurate volcanic eruption you'd need probably a bit more than coke and men- mentos <laughs> um to kind of represent all the different scientific elements of a volcanic right, eruption okay. But yeah, um, yeah, that's always something fun to do. <laughs> Diving a bit deeper, could you give us a bit of an overview of the relationship between earthquakes and volcanoes? Uh, yeah, so in general, all of the kind of how the world works, how the earth moves, it's all interconnected. And in terms of earthquakes and volcanoes, 
if a volcanic eruption happens, earthquakes usually happen as well. If an earthquake happens, it can cause a volcanic eruption. So they're very closely linked. Um, and the reason behind this is that as you have the volcano, uh, the magma, which is beneath the volcano and is, is moving under the surface and moving towards the surface, it's going to be going through cracks in the surface and causing all of these earthquakes in and around the volcanic area. So that's kind of how they're all linked together. Really interesting. I guess the idea of like the earthquake starting up cracks and then the, the magma flows through and or is it more that the crust is thinner at certain points and that allows magma to break through more easily? Uh, yeah, so it definitely depends on the type of volcano. So every volcano is unique and different depending on how it formed, where it's formed, uh, the sort of rocks that it's made up of. And yeah, if it's kind of likely to explode, if it's currently active, everything like that plays a role in if it has any earthquakes. Yeah, it's, it's very common that um, if a volcano is about to erupt, um, it will have loads and loads of um, very small earthquakes in quick succession. And then it may also have like big earthquakes as well. Despite volcanoes being different in every number of ways, all volcanoes that I know of uh, will experience earthquakes to some level when they're about to erupt. I know I've heard that there are different classifications of volcanoes. So you have like a shield volcano, and I know there are other ones, but I don't know what they're called. But are some volcanoes more prone to earthquakes triggering an eruption? There are two very basic kind of classifications you can get, um, which are strata volcanoes and shield volcanoes. Shield volcanoes are the kind of classically dome, very shallow looking volcanoes, and the strata volcanoes are the typical cone volcanoes that you picture when you think of a kind of an erupting volcano and there doesn't seem to be a difference in earthquake numbers that occur. I guess a shield volcano because it fills up a bigger amount of space the earthquakes it experiences might be over kind of a wider surface area because it just it fills up more space basically and there's more like lava moving beneath it. Wow really really <laughs> interesting. So what exactly is your PhD topic? And how does that relate to earthquakes and volcanoes? Uh, so my PhD topic is slightly different to the usual understanding of volcanoes and earthquakes that I've just explained. Uh, so my uh, research is looking at a phenomenon called dynamic triggering. So this is an unusual relationship where earthquakes which happen thousands of kilometres away will seem to trigger earthquakes on volcanoes. Uh, the case study that I'm looking at at the moment is Sierra Negra, which is a volcano in the Galapagos Islands, uh, which is just west of the Ecuadorian coast. And it's a really interesting volcano. It last erupted in 2018, before that erupted in 2005. What they found there is that following a magnitude 8.2 earthquake that occurred in Chiapas, Mexico, which is over a thousand kilometers away from Sierra Negra, a few minutes after that very large magnitude earthquake in Mexico, uh, Sierra Negra seemed to react and have its own set of mini earthquakes almost that were local to its volcanic structure. Uh, and this has happened several times with several uh, large earthquakes that have happened kind of around uh, South America, uh, where a few minutes later, it seems to trigger a reaction out of Sierra Negra. And what we found is that this reaction seems to be bigger, closer or leading up to an eruption. So I'm basically trying to understand why that's happening, what it could mean, and then also if it happens at other volcanoes, because 
understanding that earthquakes which happen over a thousand kilometers away from a volcano could still cause it to react and experience earthquakes is definitely something uh, which could kind of help us understand volcanoes to a deeper level. So this link between Sierra Negra and the Chiapas earthquake in Mexico, is that linked to like plate dynamics underneath? I know that there's the ring of fire, they say, in the Southeast Asian islands, which it's a lot of volcanoes linked together, and that might be related to plate dynamics, right? Is this something that's in play here? Yeah, so the ring of fire is definitely something which is interesting to me as a volcanologist because there's so many volcanoes outlining it, and obviously those all experience earthquakes. But that's the thing about dynamic triggering is we kind of think we know that it happens um, but we're still not entirely sure why it happens which I mean hopefully my PhD will be able to shed some light on. Uh, So when a volcano is under stress the rocks of the volcano may behave differently. If a volcano is getting primed to erupt it may be under kind of a different set of stress and strain than it would normally be. So when these faraway earthquakes happen, they may cause this volcano to behave unusually because it's kind of undergoing these unusual conditions, which is, yeah, something that we're considering at the moment. But yeah, we're still not entirely sure. What do you mean specifically about stress and strain on a volcano? How does that manifest? Every single rock on Earth is undergoing a different level of force against it which is termed stress and strain it's how the rock is being compressed and how it's being pulled apart so we can give all rocks a measure or a value of stress and strain that's being applied to it and using those stress and strain values we can understand the type of rock if it's undergoing any earthquakes for instance where the rock might be um, if it's reacting to anything that's kind of how we use stress and strain to understand different rock dynamics. Could you talk us through, Eleanor, how we currently predict volcanic activity? Uh, yes, so there's many different ways that we can predict uh, volcanic activity. So you can have measuring gas samples. So if a volcano is close to erupting, it may be releasing or have an increase in the release of carbon dioxide or sulfur dioxide. Uh, So we can take gas samples from the volcano and see if they're increasing and how kind of the levels that were being released a month ago compared to the present day. Uh, So that's one of the ways. Uh, We can also look at the shape of the volcano, uh, because as I mentioned earlier, when magma is moving below Uh, the volcano this is going to cause the volcano to change shape and size it may not be noticeable to us but there can be these very tiny measurements that can be picked up on uh, gps and tilt meters which measure the tilt of the volcano Uh, so that's something else uh, which we can look at and then you can also look at the heat being released which as magma moves closer to the surface the surface of the volcano is going to get hotter Yeah, there are all these ways, and then earthquakes is a very big, relatively easy way to measure if a volcano is going to erupt, because it will experience more earthquakes uh, leading up to an eruption. But my study of dynamic triggering is something which you need to take measurements from the volcano, but it's obviously, it's involving things which aren't directly on the volcano. So it's involving the study of these earthquakes, which aren't, aren't anywhere near this volcano that you're looking at. It's a slightly different method because it's not using not using measurements directly from the volcano, but using these faraway earthquakes that happen instead to try and understand if the volcano might erupt. So you've looked at using seismic activity to predict the activity of the Sierra Negra volcano. Could these same methods be used in other places? Uh, so 
that's again something that I'm looking at. It would be very beneficial if I could apply my research to other volcanoes because some volcanoes, millions of people live in very close proximity. So to be able to look at those volcanoes would be specifically helpful uh, to those communities. But yeah, it's something that of course, it, it depends on the volcano. Uh, for instance, Sierra Negra is an island volcano, so it's surrounded by the ocean, uh, which might have an impact on it. It's, yeah, it's on the Pacific Ring of Fire. So it would be very different to a volcano, for instance, Mount Vesuvius in Italy, um, which is kind of in a completely different scenario or earth volcanoes in other locations around the world. So that's kind of my next step, is looking at if, for instance, a volcano in Italy reacts to large earthquakes of a certain magnitude um, around the world um, and if that also seems to experience dynamic triggering. So there has been past studies on, for instance, Mount Aso in Japan seem to react to the uh, 1999 Chi Chi earthquake in Taiwan. So that was quite a large earthquake and they think they found micro earthquakes which occurred on ASO following that large magnitude earthquake. So that's, you know, they think they found it. They think they found it in Alaska as well, on the Alaskan volcanoes and Mount Etna in Italy. So there are cases, but it's again hard to kind of confirm, which, yeah, is something that I will hopefully be able to do. Okay, so if you don't mind a hypothetical to explore that a bit more. Picture a scenario where you've predicted dangerous volcanic activity and people need to evacuate. The warning messages have been sent out. How do people respond? So this depends on the uh, community. So this field of research is termed social volcanology. So it's looking specifically at how communities respond to volcanic evacuation kind of messages, for instance. Yes, yeah, so there are some really good uh, social volcanologists on Twitter. Dr. Jasmine Scarlett and Dr. Jenny Barkley both look a lot into how communities respond and how to kind of improve their knowledge of the volcanic hazards but in this instance obviously the best case scenario is to get these communities as far away as possible from the volcano as quickly as possible so there have been some really good examples of where this was done to a great kind of efficient level so in 1991 Mount Pinatubo erupted in the Philippines and luckily uh, over 5,000 people were able to be saved because of the collaboration between the Philippine Volcanological and Seismological Institute and the United States Geological Survey. Uh, they kind of collaborated because there was a United States Air Force base close by as well. So yeah, with their collaboration, uh, they managed to get people as far away as possible from the volcano 48 hours before it kind of blew its top and completely erupted. So yeah, there are some really good examples of where that's been done really successfully. Um, and it's basically, you need to get the message out as quickly as possible. Uh, so it's teaching community leaders how to quickly react to volcanic warning messages, uh, how to relay that information to the local community, as well as how to respond to different volcanic hazards. So for instance, volcanic ash, although it might not seem as deadly, if a ton of volcanic ash falls on your house, it's going to probably cause your house to collapse so you don't want to be in that house obviously whereas that's a very different hazard to a lava flow uh, which can move very quickly or very slowly depending on the type of lava so yeah it's getting the community to understand these different types of uh, volcanic hazards and there's a very good initiative at the moment actually about whenever you're carrying out a study on a volcano to make sure that your research team involves 
a scientist, at least one scientist from the local scientific community because their knowledge of the local area and their knowledge of that volcano that they interact with daily is kind of uh, invaluable, uh, especially as anyone studying volcanoes in the UK or Ireland, uh, like me, these volcanoes we study, we don't live anywhere near them. (laughs) Um, So the closest volcanoes to us right now are in Iceland and Italy. So Uh, we're quite far removed from them um, so sometimes it's hard to remember that real communities live and are affected daily by volcanoes. So how do you predict your research could improve the everyday lives of people living under the shadow of volcanoes? So hopefully if the outcome is that dynamic triggering is something that happens and that volcanoes do seem to respond to these earthquakes that happen far away, if this response increases leading up to an eruption then we might be able to tell uh, we might be able to have more evidence that an eruption is going to occur for instance as i mentioned earlier uh, the 2018 sierra negra eruption it seemed to react more to these faraway earthquakes leading up to that eruption so if for instance it starts to show more reactions again Um, and then that's followed by another eruption shortly after, that would be kind of very beneficial to our study because it would act as more of a clarification that they are linked and that it would obviously mean that we'd be able to know or it would further our predictions that an eruption is going to occur. Um, And 2,000 people or around 2,000 people live on Isabella Island, which is the island Sierra Negra is on so obviously when it comes down to it everyone's focus when they're doing their research on volcanoes is how to protect those communities so to be able to say with definite that um, a volcano is going to erupt is always good because governments they like to know for certain that something's going to happen because otherwise they don't want to waste money although it's impossible to say with 100% certainty that a volcano is going to erupt or an earthquake is going to happen. If we can improve that certainty by even just a small level, that's always good for when they want to carry out their evacuations. I can understand governments really wanting to know before they go through the whole process of evacuating their people. And we could talk for a long time, I'm sure, about all the different pressures that are involved there. But when it comes to making that prediction that a volcano is going to erupt, what sort of percentage points are you adding to that predictor by looking at dynamic triggering and earthquake behavior? It's hard to put a, a numerical percentage value on risk of a volcanic eruption and all these different behaviors that a volcano may display. But uh, for instance, so you have the gas release, the increase in heat, the change of shape of the volcano, that can all add up. So when volcanologists are monitoring a volcano they'll look for all these signs and if they just have even just one more extra thing they can look for to confirm their uh, suspicions that an eruption might occur that's kind of always a bonus and do you think that this would be a big consideration that they fold into looking at the heat and looking at the gas release so it's pretty it seems to be pretty certain that it's happening at sierra negra so it could become a big thing that they take into account there but it depends again when we apply it to other volcanoes if we see similar behavior and yeah if they want to take that into account uh, depending on kind of the statistical likelihood that dynamic triggering is actually happening yeah that's another part of my research we'll be looking at how statistically likely dynamic triggering is actually occurring on any given volcano so What do you think are the biggest misconceptions people have about the work you do? Yeah, so a big thing that people think about when they say volcanoes is 
that they think I spend every single day on an active volcano climbing in the crater and being really close to very hot lava. Uh, that's definitely not the case uh, with all volcanological studies. About 5-10% to of that is field work and collecting the data and then the remaining 90 to 95 percent of that is actually interpreting the data and understanding exactly what it means and then applying it to the volcanoes all around the world if possible um, or just that one specific volcano that you're looking at. So that's definitely a big thing that people assume. Uh, so I've started my PhD last October and I haven't been on a volcano yet which is quite sad. <laughs> I would like to go on one um, but hopefully yeah so a lot of my time so far has been looking at previous data that we've collected and kind of understanding that and trying out different things with that data it's not all kind of the dangerous lifestyle of being on an, an actively erupting volcano if you had to pick a volcano that you could go and research which would the volcano be I've, I have many favorites uh, Mauna Loa in Hawaii Mount Fuji in Japan uh, Mount Merapi yeah, there are many, <laughs> there are many uh, really cool volcanoes. Yeah, I guess another thing that people get wrong about volcanology is that they base their understandings of volcanoes on like the volcano disaster movies that you see because they are all very, very wrong. <laughs> and yeah, uh, so if anyone watches any of those movies, uh, do not trust them. They usually don't represent volcanoes very correctly and they definitely give the public a weird perception of how volcanoes behave. Great. Well, I think this has been a really interesting interview. I've certainly learned a lot. Thank you very much, Eleanor. Um, and before we go, are there any uh, places people can find you or anything you'd like to plug? Yeah, so I'm on Twitter at Basaltic Eleanor. So if uh, you ever want to talk to me about uh, volcanoes or earthquakes, then you can just message me on there and I'll happily respond. Yeah, I think that's, yeah, that's the main place uh, you can find me. <laughs> <laughs> Great. Okay, thank you very much again, Eleanor. Thank you for having me. <laughs> That's everything for this episode. Thanks for listening. If you'd like to find out more about us or Pint of Science Ireland, follow at Pint of Science, i.e. all one word, on Twitter and Instagram. And find us wherever you get your podcasts. Our guest Eleanor can be found on Twitter at Basaltic Eleanor. Like the rock. This episode was made with Kate Finucane on sound and the editing assistance of Annette Nergudi, Dan Giffney, Molly McCrory, and Kate Finucane. Research assistance from Annette Nergudi, Peter Cox, and Molly McCrory. Thanks to the co-directors of Pine of Science Ireland for 2022, Anna Wiederburn and Ashley Gorman, as well as Science Foundation Ireland. Finally, we would like to give massive thanks to Eleanor for taking the time to be with us this episode. Pine of Science Ireland is a part of the global initiative, Pine of Science, which aims to bring the research to you, the people that fund it. We'll see you next month. This has been Brian Kennedy. <laughs>